to my wretched friends. Welcome back, friends. We hope you're doing well out there. We do, we do. Um, yeah, we're tired. We're tired. It's been a rough week. Existential exhaustion. Definitely Existential is. exhaustion on every end. Mm-hmm. Well, because we have kind of a lot of story coming at us today, maybe we should just kind of get into it. Yeah, we got a lot of story today and next week. So once again, we're going to do a two-parter. So our goal is that we do, like, once again, don't keep you waiting with a full week in between. I think that is cruel and unusual punishment. It is. It is. Maybe something we'll talk about today. Hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also going to give everybody a fair warning. We are dealing with some uh, murder beagle issues cancer progressing and things like that so if we do not get part two out in a timely manner i gravely apologize yeah. all the love for murder people yes i i was trying to convince myself he was just depressed because he lost his lizard yeah i saw that and i was like i hope that's what it is but i think that was a part of it he was definitely happy when he that lizard back yeah i'm sure he was i'm sure he was so yeah, just send some good vibes. For, send good vibes. For what's going on over there? He's a good he's boy. A good boy. Wow, we said um, that at the same time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but right. we are going to try really hard to make sure that those two get put out back to back, so that there is no gap. And I am really curious about this because all I've done is Google this person and uh, like looked at like the images. And then Mick is like, oh, the images are not even the story. And I'm like, okay, then. You're like, okay, but they kind of look like it. Yeah, I'm like, the pictures look like the, the story to me, but apparently they're not. So there is so much to this. So, and we'll put these on our social media. I have been really bad about that in the past few weeks. I apologize. Facebook has not been wanting to let me log in to things. But... When you first search Nico Jenkins, you are going to have a bunch of pictures that pop up. And it is striking to look at him because he is fully covered in facial tattoos and scarification. Mm -hmm. And we can talk a little bit about kind of where that came from and the explanation for it. I do think it's a bit of a shock value. More, well... It's a bit of a shock value that I think can detract from a lot of story that we're talking about. But there's so much to this story. Like, this one kind of basically broke me. It broke my brain a little bit. Mm. I have read. Yes, exactly. I have read so many news articles, legal briefs, a fucking ombudsman's report. Um, I've made genograms. I've made timelines. There's so much information out there that you really have to sift through to get kind of the necessary pieces together to really understand this case from beginning to end. Mm. And kind of while I'm here, just kind of talking about sources, the Omaha World Herald, which I have complained about before for being (laughs) paywalled. For whatever reason, all of the articles on this case are free. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm sure there is a reason for that. I, I wonder, this is a more contemporary case. So the case, so the events that we're going to be leading up to happened in 2013. Mm. Today, we're just really going to go through backstory. But in addition to the Omaha World Herald, a lot of legal briefs, a lot of legal reports, 
Um, I also want to give a quick shout out to a particular podcast called Unforbidden Truth, where the host actually interviews Nico Jenkins from jail, which is really interesting to kind of hear his voice and hear his take on himself. Okay. Bookmarking that for later. Yeah. So like I was saying, every kind of source documentary podcast and things like that, um, kind of those big pull back and look at and look at the case seems to only go into kind of bits and pieces of the case like takes one perspective or one angle and what I really wanted to do was try to fit all the pieces together so that's why this is going to be so long and that's why this is going to be a deep dive mm. um all right I'm excited let's yes. do it let's do it so we are diving deep 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 into the deep end of the case of Nico Jenkins Nico has been described as both psychotic, totally insane, out of touch with reality, and fully schizophrenic, as well as, quote, a master manipulator who made up voices to get out of consequences. Hmm. So, I just want to hear some thoughts as we go through this. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, right off the bat, I... That's a really, it's a really shitty dichotomy that feels like a total damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like, you want to have a necessary degree of empathy when we're dealing with especially really, really serious and intense and frightening mental illnesses, right? Mm -hmm. Like schizophrenia. But we also, if, if there is a degree of faking it, that is really, really, really disgusting. So what's the truth? What is the truth? Because either way, at the end of the day, he is the most infamous spree killer in the history of Nebraska. Ah, interesting. So I'm going to pull from my, uh, my inner Tommy, my inner English teacher. (laughs) (laughs) There isn't one, but you know, I'm deep inside you. And I, and I want to start this with, what do you call them? Critical questions Mm -hmm. that we can return to throughout our story. And at the end. And those are, first, what does it mean to be competent? In a legal sense, and I would even say in a social sense, what does it mean to be competent in our society? Okay. And second, what responsibility do systems hold for the people that they take into their care and the actions that those people go on to take? Okay, I'm going to write those critical questions down because I'm a good student. Do you want me to send them in the chat? No, I already have a Google Doc open. <laughs> so just keep those in mind as we talk today and next week. Okay. Neither of these questions are meant to imply in any way, shape, or form that Nico Jenkins is not responsible for the crimes that we're going to discuss. The man is, by his own admission, a dangerous criminal. But I'm going to quote from an inquiry into his prison time, into his first series of prison sentences to express a little bit of kind of how I approached this case. So this is from the ombudsman's report that investigated the prison. Quote, Our intent in writing this is not to depict Nico Jenkins as either the victim or victimizer, or to demonize or dignify the actions of the Department of Correctional Services. Instead, our purpose is simply to state the facts we know them to be and let those facts speak for themselves. Okay. And I got a lot of facts. Yeah. I got a couple... I got a couple of thoughts. All right. I got a lot of questions and I got a lot of feelings. All right. <laughs> Let's do this. I'm sure I'll be like... joining you in all those. 
I I feel like that was a lot of kind of like preamble, but I felt like it was all kind of necessary. Mm. Yeah, I'm excited. So although this is a contemporary case, my family systems, intergenerational trauma, loving ass, um, went back five generations. Oh my God. Because Nico's family was very well known and their history in the state of Nebraska is very well documented. So we're going to go travel back and we're going to go meet the Levering Jenkinses. Mm. All right, I'm into it. Starting in 1860 with Levi Levering. Okay. Levi Levering was a respected Omaha tribal leader in the first Native American commission to the Presbyterian General Assembly beginning in 1911. Part of his work that he did as a tribal leader was to lead the battle to return indigenous lands to from the U.S. to the indigenous peoples. So he sat on councils and did a lot of arguments for kind of his tribes and other tribes to try to get their land back. He was a respected and admired teacher and elder. He and his wife, uh, Vina Bartlett of the Bannock tribe. It's interesting to me to kind of start with this, you know, very admired history of elders within their family that held a kind of a very important role in their community. Yeah. Levi and Vina had a son together, Lincoln Levering. He was born in 1900. Lincoln would have one child with Rose Springer Woodhill. This isn't as important, um, but their son, Nelson B. Levering. Again, not important to our story, but I think it's interesting. He would become a famous boxer in the 40s and 50s who fought on the same ticket as Joe Lewis. I just wanted you to know that. Uh, Yes. My dog (laughs) is named after Joe Lewis. I love that. I know. That's why I had to put our little factoid in there. Yes. Um, However, this relationship would not last, and he would, uh, Lincoln Levering would go on to marry Elizabeth Webster, and they would have nine children together. Wow. Lincoln was known for having a hot temper. In 1944, he was accused of fatally beating a man whose friend was making racist comments at a bar. Interesting. Lincoln was acquitted of that crime, claiming that it was actually someone else that pushed the man that was the final blow ending that man's life. So essentially saying, I was in the fight, but I did not deliver the final blow. Mm. Dozen years later, in 1956, he was accused of pushing his wife off a second story balcony and breaking her back. He was arrested, but the records are unclear um, what and whether he was actually charged because it was just a few months later that he was hit by a car and died. Shortly after that, his wife Elizabeth, that he had pushed, died of complications from her broken back. Jeez, that's really tragic. Very tragic. And remember that they had nine children together between the ages of 17 and 6. Most of the children were shipped off to mission schools or residential schools for Native Mm. American children. This is something that deserves a lot more (laughs) background and story. (laughs) We really need to cover these. But to give a little bit of background as far as what these mission schools were, Basically, in the U.S. and in Canada, Native American and Indigenous children were taken from their families into these schools to, scare quote, civilize them. They were not allowed to practice Indigenous religions or family traditions, speak their languages, eat their foods, or anything. Uh, I'm going to take a quick 
description from the Northern Plains Reservation Aid website, which provides aids to uh, survivors of the mission and residential schools. It said, quote, the goal of these reformers was to use education as a tool to assimilate Indian tribes into the mainstream of the American way of life, a Protestant ideology of the mid-19th century. Indian people would be taught the importance of private property, material wealth, and monogamous nuclear families. The reformers assumed it was necessary to scare, quotes, civilized Indian people, make them accept white men's beliefs and value systems. I'm sorry, I just threw up in my mouth a little. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) These goals were achieved through isolation from their culture, Mm -hmm. more scare, quotes, reward systems, and physical abuse when nothing else worked. Yeah, there's a really long, dark, and scary history going on there. Mass graves have been found at these schools. Mm-hmm. Like, mass. Very recently, a, a, one was found that was, like, I don't want to speak incorrectly, but I want to say it was, like, dozens and dozens mm-hmm. of children's bodies found. Yeah. It's yes. it's terrifying. It reminds me um, a lot of the, the women's homes in Ireland. Mm. Yeah, it's very troubling. It's very tiring. Side note, as I was, like you know, going through some of this stuff, it's giving me a lot of flashes of the kind of colonialist spirit of a lot of behavior therapy. Yes, 100%. Like a lot of quote unquote therapeutic schools and things like that. These isolation reward systems, Mm. abuse. Yeah. Like I said, we really need to do like a full episode on these schools. We've talked about it. We've talked about certain cases that we could cover with them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And we'll get there. But I, I kind of do that like mini info dump to say this is where the levering children went after the deaths of their parents. Mm-hmm. And this includes Nico Jenkins' grandmother, Norma Ann Levering. She did not spend too much time there. She was the oldest child, so she was about 16 or 17 at the time of their deaths. And shortly after that, she was able to kind of skip town and head to Omaha, Nebraska, which was becoming a little bit more of a bigger city center more of a major city. This would have been in the 1950s. Gotcha. Also scary to think that the residential schools um, lasted so long. Yeah, it is. I'm sure some people would have them still going on. Oh, I am certain some people would still have them going on if they could. Um, This is where that kind of famous kill the Indian, save the man Mm -hmm. ideology came from. Yeah. Any hoozles. Any hoozles. So... Norma Ann Levering moved to Omaha in her late teen years. Now, she did struggle with crime in her early life. She was convicted of robbery at the age of 20. She was shot at the age of 31, but did survive. After that, she became an active member of the Native American community in Omaha, in the Omaha tribe, and was elected to several tribal boards and councils. However, it would seem that despite her work, she began to struggle with dependence on alcohol and possibly other drugs. She would marry George Jenkins, and the two would have five children together. According to her granddaughter, Lori Sales, Norma Ann was, quote, a party-hard little lady. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's how you talk about your grandma, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, why not? To give you you a little taste, uh, Lori Sales recounted a story where Norma Ann once dropped her her son Garland off with her sister Adeline, and then just her moved to Denver for a while and partied in Denver for a while. Wow, okay, we are partying hard. We are partying hard across state lines. Mm -hmm. 
She would go on to have um, other children and other relationships. The family tree does tend to wither a bit at the ends here. So it's a little bit of a hard guess to know where how many their children there were, where they ended up. Because many of the children would end up being removed from the home and raised in the foster care system or bounced between several other levering family members. And when you have that many kind of systems from foster care and the criminal justice system and things like that involved, it's hard to track people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While some children would grow up and find some peacefulness and success, otherwise would other children would end up kind of following into a life of crime. And it is within this next generation that Nico's mother and aunts and uncles would band together a little bit in Omaha to raise their children. It seemed like there was a large family, a lot of cousins, uncles, grandparents, whatever. So there was a lot of shared babysitting, family gatherings, that sort of thing. At this point, we're inching our way into the 80s and 90s, which something else was going on in Omaha at the time. And that was an influx of gang culture. So we saw sex of the Blood and the Crip gangs entering into Omaha, Nebraska. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Would not have guessed that, but okay. I mean, I just, I don't know wherever. much about Omaha. Yep. <laughs> you go wherever. That is my ignorance about Omaha more than anything else. Well, I mean, at one point, I need to do an episode about gangs because I have a lot yeah. of. Um, brain storage spent on my amateur expertise in gang culture so we'll get there i have wanted to because obviously i'm in chicago and so like there are some very very infamous gang members mm-hmm. with like histories and it's a really interesting culture yeah around the gangs here actually cult podcast if you ever listen to them did a really interesting kind of series on the latin kings in chicago Ooh, okay i'm into it yeah So anyway, what we're looking at here across generations of families, we're seeing families struggling with poverty, varied criminal activity, um, now kind of starting to get into gang involvement and that sort of thing. Before we jump into Nico's immediate family and his mother, Lori, I kind of want to zoom into a couple of family members that are going to play a role in Nico's upbringing in terms of his role models, who were his role models? Who were his people growing up that he looked up to? Yeah. So I'm going to start with Warren Levering. He is going to come back. So keep that name in your mind, Warren Levering. Warren was the son of Norma Ann, um, but he grew up in foster care after being given up for adoption at a young age. Mm. He met his sister, Lori, when he was about 16, Throughout his life, he had several criminal convictions to his name, including assault with a dangerous weapon, kidnapping, and domestic abuse. He was heavily present throughout Nico's life as kind of a father figure type. Okay. Another one was Robert Lincoln Levering. Robert had about 30 convictions dating back to the 1980s. These included burglary, theft, and unlawful transport of firearms. And then we get his cousin, Jimmy, or Jimbo Levering. Jimbo was known by his early teens as one of Omaha's most feared gang members. Interesting. He got his first murder charge at age 17. 
But the charges were eventually dropped in relation to the murder. This is suspected due to uh, witness intimidation. However, he did serve 30 months in federal prison on related charges. Shortly after he got out at the age of 21, he was shot and killed outside of a club. Jeez. Now, all of this information and kind of like I'm sharing it because I do think it's important in terms of scene setting and talking about the family culture that Nico grew up around. Yeah. The Omaha World Herald put together this really lovely family tree and was able to count a total of 633 criminal convictions within the Levering Jenkins family since 1979. Wow, that's incredible. Most family members were not involved in crime or gangs. I think that's fair, like Very important, important to, to put say. out there. Yeah. yeah, it's not everyone in the family. However, the ones that did get involved in this life in this life of crime were habitual lawbreakers and yeah, were a very it says that tight. The ones that are involved were very, very, very involved. Are you co-researching as I talk? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was it read to me very much like a cult in this yeah. family. Like, they had their own code of loyalty, their own code of norms, their own family hierarchy and sense of who and what is to be feared and what gives you power within this family. It was very cultish. Yeah, and that's, well, that's something really important to remember anytime we're talking about anything related to gangs, too, is that Mm -hmm. the... The Venn diagram between gangs and cults is uh, there's a, a lot of intersection in the middle there. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, they yeah. function very, very similarly to each other, which I'm sure people in religious cults do not want to acknowledge, but is a true fact. <laughs> Sorry about you. Oh, like, such a true fact. Yeah. Such a true fact. And also the impact of family connections and gang involvement. Mm-hmm. It's not like just any random, like, When I worked, so I worked very, very early when I was in grad school in some therapeutic day schools. And one particular kind of very infamous one in the city of Chicago had a lot of gang members. And almost every single one of the teenagers, like these were kids ages 12 to 22 that I worked with. Mm -hmm. Almost every single one had said that a family member got them into the gang. Yeah. And, like, being got into the gang means, like, hey, kids, stand on the street corner and just keep an eye out for cops. Yeah. And it just kind of increasing from there. there. Yeah. 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 So, again, I think that that's why it's important to talk about his family and why I think that background is so important. Um, Lori Jenkins, again, Nico's mother, who we're about to talk about, very plainly said, quote, my side of the family is nothing but alcoholics, crackheads, and drunks. Cool. Yet very close-knit group of them. Like, close-knit but volatile, as in, like, cousins stabbing each other, cousins stealing from each other. Wow. It sounds terrifying, like a terrifying way to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. But, in this instance, entirely normalized. Yeah, it's what you know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, no, no, we're finally going to get to Lori Jenkins and David McGee, the parents of our main actor here. Lori was the second of nine children born to Norma Ann and George Jenkins. Um, Prior to the the events of 2013, which we will discuss, she had eight convictions, all for nonviolent crimes and one felony shoplifting charge. 
She met David McGee when she was a teenager. They had their first child when she was 16 and he was 31. Wait, 16 and 30. Is that, did you say 16 and 31? Yes. Oh. I was waiting for your reaction because you were oh. just like, do, 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 do. <laughs> no, I, well, I wanted to see what she looked like. So I was like, oh, what's your mom look like? So I Googled her real quick. So I was like, then suddenly picturing her at 16. Yeah, that's wow. Okay. So, I mean, we're also talking about a lot of generational trauma as well, which so is like, much. as you were talking about the whole family tree, I was like, let's just make sure we keep a bookmark into the idea of generational trauma too. And I feel like this whole thing is intergenerational trauma of yeah. just like being passed down and passed down and passed down. And that's why, like, I thought it was important as much as some people kind of roll their eyes at having this much context in a story and this much backstory. Mm. I do think it was important to kind of go that far back and talk about, like, yeah, we're talking about growing up in mission schools. We're talking about that being passed down into gang involvement. And we're talking yeah. about why does this family trust no one? Why is yeah. this family so insular? True that. Okay. Continue. So Lori and David McGee would have four children together in a highly unstable relationship. Mm. Lori described their relationship as full of violence, which their kids were constantly exposed to. A very, very significant and chronic drug use and mental illness. Nico would say in interviews that both his father and paternal grandfather were diagnosed with schizophrenia. I was not able to find any other evidence of this. Um, despite the massive amounts of information on the Leverings Jenkins family, there is nothing about his father's side of the family. Interesting. David McGee, like, popped in, fathered for a few years, and then died of natural causes. Huh. Yeah. Spooky. His father was, in 1978, like, one of the few bits of information I got, convicted of manslaughter. But this conviction was set aside. Interesting. There's a lot of interesting. There's a lot of, oh, and then he murdered somebody. Mm. But it was overturned. Bookmarking that in my brain. Yeah. Or the witness dropped out. Yeah, park that in your brain. Park that in your brain. Because now we see two close family members that had a very strong relationship with him being charged with murder and being let off. Mm. Yeah, okay. Keep those critical questions in your pocket. <laughs> um, David McGee had relationships with, relationships with both Lori Jenkins and her cousin Ida Levering. Both alleged that he beat them while pregnant. Oh, God. So let's add some in utero tr physical trauma. Mm -hmm. Lori and David had four children together. Like I said, Sophia, Sophia Nico, Melanie, and Erica. Nico was born September 16th, 1986. Whoa, young. He's our age. Yeah. Lori would also have another daughter, also named Lori. This was Lori Sales. Okay. So, two. <laughs> Lori Jenkins and Lori Sales. Got it. Let's debrief briefly about the environment that Nico is coming into. Mm -hmm. He's born into a family with a history of criminal activity. Poverty, intergenerational trauma, in utero trauma, gang activity, family members being moved from various institutions, from prison to foster care, juvenile justice, all of this stuff. In the four generations since Levi Levering, authorities removed 20 children 
from various Leverings Jenkins homes. Wow. I take a notes. I'm taking them in my brain. <laughs> the numbers are, I mean, the numbers are really staggering. And what that communicates to me is like, you know, you can have list off all of these things that, that make their family so mired in all of this violence and trauma. Um, and the more of that, the lip that you list off, the more that it's obvious how those things were so normalized within the family. Right. So it's not as if the family is living those things and thinking, gee whiz, we live a really exceptional life, right? Like this is their, the whole culture of their family, the whole culture mm-hmm. that they've had in their family for generations. So mm-hmm. I, I just want to kind of make sure that like people are aware of that, but like, not only are these things happening and they probably sound to many of us like, mm-hmm. holy shit. Like, um, wow, that yeah. many kids were removed, that many crimes, that many whatever. And like to them, I, I would be very, very certain that it was not holy shit at all. You know, mm-hmm. that this was mm-hmm. like, this was the family they grew up in. It was normal. It's the same way that, you know, we all, well, I didn't think of my family as normal, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Are his facial tattoos still the most interesting part of the story? Absolutely not. It, it was the <laughs> scarification that was interesting to me. Um, yeah. Not the yeah. facial tattoos. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. <sighs> okay. Where was I? <laughs> um, quoting again from the Omaha World Herald. Quote, law enforcement officials and academic experts paint the portrait of a family that has deteriorated through escalating violent crime, drug, and alcohol abuse and child neglect. One writer compared them to the Jesse James clan. Another asked very simply, what would you expect to happen? Wow. Wow. Blunt. Let me tell you what happened. Yeah, yeah. Now that we're on page five of my notes, (laughs) let's start talking about Nico Jenkins. Okay. Tell me about Nico. All right. Nico was the second child born to Lori and David. Mm -hmm. Reminder that Lori and David had their first child when Lori was 16. David was 31. That means when Nico was born, she was 19. He was 34. And that's disgusting. Yes. I try not to be judgy about many things, but this is something I'm going to be really judgy about. Yeah, for sure. Because then um, you can also add to the list of things normalized in the family. Um, pedophilia. Pedophilia, yeah. Sexual so abuse. There's no yeah. way that, that children of this family are not being abused in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Nico's oldest sister would say that she did a lot of the child rearing. I don't think that's surprising to any oldest child in a no, trauma family. No, we love parentified. Love that parentification. Mm-hmm. Throughout Nico's childhood, from the early, early stages, he was surrounded by substances, violence, and crime to the point that it was normalized. And he picked up on this. I I feel like at this point, there are many people who are going to be like, oh, was it nature or nurture? Which I feel like is just a dumb question in this case. Like, there is literally no way to try to suss this out. Like, oh, was he born a criminal? Was he made a criminal? Like... Bitch, there ain't no difference. No. Yeah. I mean, uh, I whenever that question comes up, I always think about one of my favorite documentaries, which is Three Identical Strangers. Highly recommend. And there's this um, quote at the end, and I'm probably going to get it a little bit wrong, but um, they basically draw the conclusion that, you know, our genetics kind of push us, like set us up at like a, a certain default and then nurture pushes us into one direction or the other. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, I mean, a way of saying it's six of one half dozen of the other, right? 
This is a very old series, but you might particularly like it. It's called Seven Up. I love Seven Up. Yes. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah. you know this. I, I Yes, I do. I, I love it because it really plays all of that out so hard by following this group totally of kids does. every seven years. Yeah. And, and it's so like, yeah. And Nicole Strangers, which is an mm-hmm. exceptional documentary. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to stop nerding out over documentaries. Yes. Um, Nico recalled some of his earliest memories. I'm just going to share some of his early memories with you. Um, so, you know, open up your picture book or your journal. Um, he recalled his earliest memories being around age four. And he recalled cleaning blood off the floor after a fight between his parents. Oh, God. He described how once he had to separate his parents' fight by hitting his father in the head with a brick or a rock. He couldn't remember if it was brick or a rock. Nico's first foray into the justice system was at the ripe age of seven. When he showed up to his elementary school classroom with a loaded twenty-five caliber handgun. Wow. Juvenile court officers that worked on the case recalled that he was barely old enough to see over the counter at the courthouse. Jeez. At the age of eight, Nico had his first inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. He was brought in by his mother, who expressed concern about increase in his aggressive behavior and making statements about harming himself. Interesting. Okay. Nico spent 11 days in the hospital under the primary treatment of Dr. Jane Dalk, who diagnosed him at the time with ODD and ADHD. So oppositional defiant disorder and ADHD. Uh, Dr. Dalk would later testify that even at this age, he reported hearing voices telling him to steal and to hurt people. He reported at the time seeing black spirits and having nightmares about his dad and uh, having nightmares about his dad shooting his mom. Now, this sounds to me like a pretty solid diagnosis of PTSD with psychosis. Yeah. I was just going to ask. So, uh, in certainly in like my work, I spent six years in a school building that ran a 33% special education population. State average in Indiana is 11%. So it was pretty um, (laughs) exceptional space. Um, And I'm trying to think back to every kid that I've had that had an ODD diagnosis. And I can only think of one kid that had an ODD diagnosis that didn't also have profound trauma that we were aware of. And I would be willing to bet you that that kid had some trauma or some chronic stressor that simply didn't hit an ACE. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So like, does ODD exist in a vacuum or is it almost always associated with some kind of childhood trauma? I very rarely have seen ODD when there is not a history of either childhood trauma or some level of neurodivergence. Mm-hmm. Um, very infamously, getting better now, but very famously, autism is severely underdiagnosed in minority children. Yes, yes. And oppositional defiant disorder is fucking crazy overdiagnosed. And it makes me so mad. It's infuriating, and I can think of so many cases where I am literally here, like, with this autistic or ADHD or PTSD suffering kid, and, like, really suffering. I don't necessarily say ADHD or autism is suffering, but Mm -hmm. these kids were suffering because it was unrecognized and untreated and unsupported. Yeah. And just a label of ODD was slapped on them. 
And so just for, uh, for people that might not know, um, when it comes to ODD and the behaviors that you might see, uh, just from what I was familiar <laughs> with, um, you know, the main characteristic being uh, defiance, obviously, oppositional defiance disorder. Oppositionality and defiance. Yes. Uh, very serious problems with authority, uh, anger, like just a default irritableness. And I feel as though when we talked about it, uh, it always had a quality of like um, kids that were very interested in um, revenge or kids that were like fairness. manipulative, vindictive. Uh, yeah, like really, really obsessed with fairness or justice in, in whatever way they defined it. So mm-hmm. so if you picture what those behaviors might look like in a classroom uh, or like peer to peer relationships, you're going to see a lot of, you know, social and physical violence, right? Yeah, there is quite a bit of, I think what stands out often in the classroom is demand avoidance with mm-hmm. that oppositionality, you know, and, and it's hard because you can run the gamut of kids diagnosed with ODD and it's everything from a kid that refuses to do their math homework and just wants to sit there and read a book mm-hmm. to a kid that is destroying a classroom and, right. you know, and violent toward themselves and toward other people. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in my experience, I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm not going to say that I've never seen a kid without a trauma history or some kind of neurodivergence diagnosed with ODD, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Like, I kind of, I have always, I really think it's a cop-out diagnosis because theoretically, it is supposed to be that you diagnose ODD when you don't have other explanations. Mm -hmm. But trauma is an explanation for behavior. Trauma is an explanation. And this is going to be a bit of a, a bit of a theme, a bit of a light motif as we kind of move forward. Well, we like a motif, don't we? We like a, we like a motif. So this is the kind of child that we're looking at here, right? Yeah. yeah. So this is little eight-year-old Nico Jenkins, aggressive, angry, I'm guessing very easily triggered, reporting that he is seeing and hearing things. Um, in later testimony... Dr. Dalk would say that she should have diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. But at the time, remember, this is 1994, 1995. We really weren't doing that. We were not diagnosing eight-year-olds with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. It would have to be an extremely clear-cut case Mm -hmm. and an extremely kind of specialized person, I would think, to do that. Even today, I wouldn't say it's like restricted, but in my in my opinion, as and this is me speaking as a professional, you need to make a clear argument as to why you're diagnosing an eight year old with bipolar disorder. Sure, yeah, and that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) At this time, he was briefly taken from his family into juvenile facilities due to that aggression that we were talking about, that harm to others, making threats to others. And thus began his childhood in and out of his family home, group homes, and the Douglas County Youth Detention Center. By the age of 11, he had stopped attending school regularly and had been arrested for robbery multiple times. So age 11, that is fifth grade. Mm -hmm. Think about 11-year-old boys you know. Sad, sad little specimens of humans they are. Oh, 
such awkward, awkward boys. Yeah, you couldn't uh, pay me any amount of money to go back to being a fifth grader. My my loving now husband is a was an elementary school teacher. And because we are gluttons for punishment, these are the age groups that we fucking love is like pre-adolescence <laughs> through the teenage years. Like Yeah, gluttons for punishment. Gluttons for punishment. They're my favorite too, but that's because we're wonderful. all cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Exactly. They're wonderful. Um, if you think your four-year-old is terrible, just wait until they're 11. I don't think she's terrible. If you're listening, maybe in the future. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> um, so, yeah. By the time he was 11, he stopped attending school, had been arrested for robbery multiple times. And again, I want to kind of bring back in that family culture and the kind of community culture into this. He wasn't doing these things alone. Right. And so he was sent to a group home in Papillon, Nebraska. I'm assuming that's how that's pronounced because it looks like Papillon. I mean, it's the Midwest, so it's probably Papillion. Exactly. That's what I was like. I'm thinking about Ohio where we pronounce Russia Rushi. Indiana, too. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, he would eventually be kicked out for kicked out of the group home for assaulting other children. Yeah. The final event that led to him being kicked out was February 26th, 1998. He used a clothes hanger to whip another child hard enough to leave marks on his body. Jeez. A clothes hanger. That's so scary. He would be transferred to another youth detention center, but eventually released back to his mother. By the end of 1998, he was already back in youth detention for assaulting somebody with a knife. So he's 12 at this point. During all of this time, he has later reported that he had been being assaulted sexually by a family member and physically by several other family members. Of course he was. Mm-hmm. There's no way that wasn't happening. Of course. Of course. And I think that this is where, again, that question of he is being dragged in and out of group homes, detention centers, and always just kind of returning home to what and like what rehabilitation therapy support is happening here right wherever he was placed he would run away he would attack children staff become violent regress in all of his symptoms or and either run away or be kicked out in august 2001 at the age of 14 he was sent to the youth rehabilitation and treatment center in kearney nebraska one year later, he is sent back to his home. It was in preparation for this release that his father wrote to the juvenile courts begging the courts not to return Nico home. Interesting. His father wrote, Nico Jenkins has threatened my life and pulled a sawed-off shotgun on me at my home and said, we cannot take him. Jeez. At some point during all of this, Nico does get involved in gang activity I don't think that's really surprising. I also don't think that that was a big driver of his behavior. I think it was just another thing. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, it gave him an opportunity to do more of the things that he was doing. Yeah. A structure. Yeah. He begins a series of carjackings. In one incident, he ordered a 21-year-old man out of his car and took off in it. In a second incident, he asked a 20-year-old woman for a ride. She declined. He got into the back seat, pulled a shotgun out on her, and told her to drive until he ordered her out of the car and then drove away in it. 
Jeez. He is 15 at the time of these events. By the age 16, he's arrested and put in jail awaiting trial and sentencing. Jeez. By 17, he is sentenced to 14 to 15 years in a state prison for the carjackings. He serves the first few years of that 14 to 15 year sentence in a juvenile facility before being transferred at the age of about 19 and a half. He was transferred to the adult facility. Okay. Much of what I'm going to cover now comes directly from the state of Nebraska's ombudsman report. Mm -hmm. This was written by a commission to explore what went wrong at the end of this prison sentence that allowed Nico Jenkins to be released. Because he goes to prison at the age of 16. He comes out. He is released fully into the community with no restrictions at the age of 26. And this is just for the the carjacking? This is for the carjackings. I mean, that is a a conventional to heavy sentence for a carjacking. So I'll go into it a little bit more. He had years added for other attacks in the prison. Sure. Okay. Okay. So that is why. So it's a 14 to 15 year sentence. As we all know, that means about seven Mm -hmm. years. um, But he had time added. Okay. So he is released at the age of 26 with no restrictions whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Ten days after his release from prison, he begins a killing spree that terrified Omaha for weeks. Seriously? He kills four people within 30 days of being released from prison. I did not know that. That's horrifying. That is the big crime. Mm-hmm. That we will be covering next week. What? Yes. But we're not done today. Okay. Because we are going to talk about what happened in prison. Okay. Good, 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 good. You, <laughs> you have to give me something here. You can't be like, blah, 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 family tree, blah, 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 kill people, blah, 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 next week. So anyway, he's going to kill people. See you next week. <laughs> Bye. No. Bye. Yeah, not okay. No, not okay. I think that would be disrespectful for everyone involved. Yes, not only me, but everybody involved here. Okay. Um, But there is, there's so much to go over that literally we're not even going to get to the spree, the killing mm. spree this week. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about some of our favorite things. November 11th, 2003, Nico Jenkins is placed in a Nebraska youth corrections facility for two counts of robbery and one count of use of a weapon to commit a felony. Okay. His original sentence, remember, is 14 to 15 years with a required minimum of eight. Got it. His first year and a half are seemingly quiet. No one reports any major incidents. Until July 4th, 2005, he was involved in a prison riot. Yeah. So he reportedly played some role in initiating and instigating this riot, but it seems a little bit unclear to me in my reading of the documents. Mm. Um, During the riot, he hit an inmate in the head more than 10 times, and he was placed in segregation for 40 days, meaning 40 days of solitary confinement. He was just about 18 at this time. He's released into general population in December of 2005. And then very quickly after another aggressive offense toward another inmate, he's given another five days in solitary confinement. 
Now, a lot of the incidents at the prison, the uh, episodes of aggression, were because he was assumed to be a member of the Omaha Crips gang. And it was believed that the offenses were gang-related and kind of gang rivalry things. He does go on to have a trial for his role in the prison riot and is placed in segregation in the Douglas County Jail during these proceedings. So while he is undergoing his trial for his role in the prison riots, he is in segregation for that entire time. Oh, boy. Once he is found guilty of the assault at the riot, he has a few years added to his sentence, and he is quickly transferred to the adult facility, the Tecumseh State Penitentiary. Mm. Go ahead. Well, okay. So we all know that solitary confinement does nothing to help and only hurts, right? Literally nothing. I am... Um, I'm just really surprised that that was happening in a youth facility. I guess that was my face when like you reminded us that that was all part of the youth youth facility. Yeah. I was very, very, very surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. 40 days is a long sentence in In solitary. solitary. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And I don't remember what the exact number is, but there's a, like a mean of days before one starts to see some pretty, upsetting and scary i guess symptoms you would call we know nico jenkins story so far and we know that he is many standard deviations away from the mean in just about everything that's very true so yeah we're just gonna keep on going okay cool shortly after transfer to tecumseh he does another year in segregation a year a year in segregation wow nebraska so now we're roughly 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he is put on the waiting list for a placement in a transition program. So he would have had done about four years of his minimum, well, original minimum eight. And then I think he had two years added. Okay. So he's waiting for the transition program. This transition program would have helped prepare him for transition into the general community. I am a big advocate for these. I think they should be not only an opportunity, I think they should be required, and I think they should be the focus of every prison sentence. Mm -hmm. These programs can include anything from counseling, job skills training, life skills training, how to get a job, how to manage anger, uh, everything like that. Yes, I agree with you very much, obviously. Um, (laughs) I'm an abolitionist, 100%. But I do worry about the ability of those types of programs to deal with somebody like a Nico Jenkins, right? Like, who is not average in any way, shape, or form, right? I, I fully agree. Those programs are meant for people that are, that already have some kind of baseline. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, some kind of baseline of stability. Mm-hmm. Nico Jenkins, we know from the time he was born, has never had a baseline of Anything. any biopsychosocial stability whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, his baseline is instability completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one would argue that he needs more intensive treatment, right? Yes. Earlier and more intensive interventions. So while he is on this waiting list, 
This is when Nico Jenkins begins to articulate that he is having homicidal ideations and begins making threats to hurt others once he is released, mm. saying, when I get out of here, I'm going to kill people. Wow. He is once again placed in solitary from June 8th, 2007 to December 4th, 2008. Oh, my gosh. He has a few months out. But May 2009, he's back in solitary until December 2009. Wow. Don't worry about your mental math, your napkin math. I have this added up at the end. Thank you. When does he have time <laughs> to do all this shit to his face? He did it himself. Interesting. Okay. okay. So the the majority of especially this, the scarification mostly happened during his, actually during this prison stint. I think I talk about it later, but there was a lot of concerns about how he was getting razor blades to cut himself. Fair concern. We know prison tattoos are a fucking thing. Mm -hmm. Many of them he did to himself, and they were considered a form of self-mutilation. As he started mutilating his face and doing the scarification, there were more and more restrictions placed on him, and that became a justification for his placement in solitary confinement was that he is injuring himself and he's not safe for himself. I just, the I'm fact that that's all going on and everyone's like, do, 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 whatever. It's all good. Just let put him back in solitary. It, it, well, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's not, it's not even like do, 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 do. It's all good. It's, oh no, he's a danger in himself. Throw him in solitary because mm -hmm. that'll fix it. Right. He definitely can't make a knife out of a toothbrush to scar his face. Yeah, this definitely guy can make can't a knife out of anything. Literally anything. Wow. Anyway, so we're in December 2009. Nico is granted supervised release to attend a family member's funeral. Why? I don't know, because he clearly was not stable. Yeah. Well, at the funeral, he attempted escape and assaulted a corrections officer. As you do. For that offense, he has more time added to his sentence and is thrown back in solitary confinement from February 2010 to July 2011. Wow. He is eventually released, like I said, in 2011, then refuses to submit to a search and gets another 90 days in solitary. Released again, he uses threatening language toward another inmate, given 45 days in solitary. Mm. In his final stint, he's awaiting another prison transfer from Tecumseh to Nebraska State Penitentiary. Apparently, like, as he gets closer to his release date, they have to release him into the local county prison. That's so that's why he had to be kind of be moved. Mm -hmm. During this period, awaiting transfer, he spends 20 more months in solitary confinement. Oh, my God. March 15th, 2013. He's transferred to Nebraska State Penitentiary. This was, again, intended to allow him to participate in that transition program. So he would have at least gotten a couple of months of transition programming. This boy needs a lot more than that. Um, however, he would never even participate in those few months because he would spend the next four months in Unit 4D of the Segregation Unit of the Nebraska State Penitentiary until he was given full discharge from prison with no probation no, and no conditions on July 30th, 2013. So he was literally discharged 
from solitary into civilian life. Nebraska. They got their asses sued. Nebraska. They suffered no consequences from it, but their asses got sued. That is so wild. I mean, it's like, it's so wild to me that, like, on one hand, they have a transition program, which, yay. But on the other hand, could be so, like, woefully uninformed about how to handle... And I understand that Nico Jenkins is, like, so far removed from what anyone is trained to deal with. Like, transition programs are for the people who are the majority of prisoners. Right. The majority who... Petty robbery, uh, poverty-related offenses, Mm -hmm. things like that. And this is not a word I use in, in like, a complimentary way, but clearly this man is exceptional in the sense... In, (laughs) you know, in relief to the rest of the the population, like, the felonious population, right? So I wanted to give that timeline of his time in prison, and then I want to go through kind of his mental health exposure and kind of what the facilities around him were doing about him at that time Mm -hmm. aside from putting him in solitary but for those of you trying to keep up on your napkin math nico jenkins served a total of 116.5 months in prison approximately 58 of those were spent in a segregation cell Give that's that just a percentage. about just about 50 percent wow yeah i and it, like the time that he wasn't in solitary he was you know doing the things that prepared him to get into solitary right so what is like it's just a cycle 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 yeah so now is kind of when i want to circle back around and talk about kind of what he was doing before we know about his mental health before his time in prison and before all of that time in solitary and i kind of saved our discussion of solitary confinement toward the end oh sorry (laughs) no 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 it's fine but i think kind of what i wanted to set up was here is the man that they're releasing into the community and that's why next week we can talk about the crimes he committed yeah yeah totally um So we know that as far back as age seven, Nico is reporting auditory hallucinations and, or I should say, as far back as the age of age eight, he is reporting auditory hallucinations, compulsions toward violence, and urges to self-harm. There's a possible family history of schizophrenia as well as definite substance abuse and trauma. Nico is incarcerated in 2003 and has his first stint in solitary confinement in 2005. As far as mental health events in prison, we have significant recorded events beginning in 2008 after his transfer to the adult prison. Prior, while he was at the juvenile facility, we have comments on his tendency to engage in self-harm, which included headbanging, cutting, and tattooing that was considered self-mutilation. He has said that when he went into prison, he did not have any tattoos. And when he came out, that was what he looked like. Interesting. Yes. Beginning in July 2008, we have prison staff recording Jenkins making comments, including saying he's, quote, going to just go randomly go to the suburban houses and start killing people outside of North Omaha. Maybe go to Tecumseh or Syracuse with his gang members and start killing people. That was a comment made to a prison staff. 
that was just one of many comments made to prison staff that I will kill as soon as I get out. Now, again, prison staff, I'm certain, are used to hearing this constantly. Sure. However, as things escalate, you do eventually have to take shit seriously. Yeah. And I, so my question is like, what was documented at the time? And what, what if this information came out afterward when people were like, oh, yeah, I remember when he said dot, 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 you know? A lot of this was available from the ombudsman's report, which kind of it has a timeline of all of the events and kind of what was documented, like in okay. record notes and things like that. Most of what I have here was documented in contemporary notes. Mm, okay. He told he told officials after um, he was released from that two year stint in solitary, he said that the two years he did in segregation, as well as the abuse from prison staff had ruined him and made him, quote, very mentally ill. He said the prison was a breeding ground for for the criminally insane and that staff would intentionally berate and abuse inmates because, according to Jenkins, staff wanted prisoners to go out and kill their own kind. Hmm. In 2009, he was caught trying to choke himself. When calmed and questioned, he said, I have an evil half and I'm going to kill it. For this, he was placed in an observation cell, which is... Solitary not with a yeah. Okay. It's not totally solitary because you have people watching you and you can see them and wave. It's around this time in 2009 that he starts getting the attention of mental health staff at the prison, finally. Yeah. He admitted that he had fantasies about killing people when released. He said that he felt he was destined to become a homicidal maniac but that he liked having somebody to talk to and he felt that having the mental health staff there helped him. Mm. He did not in his claims of, I'm going to become a homicidal maniac, I'm going to kill people. He never identified a specific person nor an inmate or staff that he wanted to harm, um, but was referred for further evaluation. Mm. He was interviewed by prison psychologists and psychiatrists he shared that he felt he had schizophrenia or multiple personalities. Described his personalities as, quote, a serial killer, a gangster, and Nico. Mm. And said that he wanted rehab, specifically requesting to be sent to a mental health unit. Interesting. The evaluating doctors, however, said that it was not clear if he was appropriate for transfer and they would follow up in two weeks. What? Spoilers, he would never be transferred. Right. In August 2009, he was assessed by Dr. Norma Baker. He was described in her notes as intense, talkative with rapid speech, extremely narcissistic, but with fairly well-managed thoughts. Interesting. So when mental health professionals are kind of taking notes like that, what we're alluding to are symptoms. Mm -hmm. So rapid speech, disjointed thinking, tangential speech, that sort of thing, um, pressured speech, those behavioral tells are often what we are diagnosing on in addition to what the client specifically tells us. Sure. So she prescribed risperidone and Depakote. 
Risperidone or Risperdal is an antipsychotic medication that's often used in the treatment of psychosis as well as irritability and aggression. It kind of dulls you. Depakote is an anticonvulsant, which is very often used. It's an older medication too. Both of these are pretty old. Um, Depakote is often used uh, to function as a mood stabilizer in people with psychosis and and bipolar disorder. October 2009, he's stable in medication. Thoughts are noted to be well-organized with less paranoia. Okay. In December 2009, so two months later, he had stopped taking his medication, saying that they don't help him. At this time, he endorsed hearing the voices of the Egyptian god Apophis and saying that he wanted to harm himself. Okay. He presented as significantly more agitated and hypomanic. Uh, said that he no longer wanted medication, but he did want counseling. He was deemed to not be an immediate harm to himself or others. Two weeks later, two weeks after this, um, him being deemed not a harm to himself or others, was his travel release and assault on prison staff. He would later say that he regretted the attack, but didn't take responsibility. He did agree to reconsider medication and once again asked for transfer to a mental health unit. Over the next weeks, his symptoms escalated. He agreed to medication because he did not like feeling the way that he felt at the time. Evaluating psychiatrists put in their notes that Nico Jenkins' symptoms are, quote, inconsistent and more behavioral slash access to in nature. Notes included references to secondary gain. What? Secondary gain. So secondary gain means it's in this context that they are using these symptoms to get better treatment in some way. Got it. So secondary gain can be used to say that he's using this to get out of solitary. Right. He's using it because he thinks he'll get better treatment in a mental health facility. Which, by the way, mental health facility, like criminal mental health facilities, they're not the fucking Ritz. Right. And I don't understand the this like insistence we have in a as a culture of like no they just want to go to the hospital i'm like okay and have you been into one of them because it's (laughs) you lived at a hospital for a few months was it great i mean they made a really good grilled cheese sandwich but i was also at a children's hospital so (laughs) so of course they made a good they had good grilled cheese and good pudding because it's a children's hospital i hardly think that the adult psychiatric wing of the nebraska state penitentiary right was anything in comparison and living in a hospital for three months was depressing as hell even in the sixth best hospital in the world yeah yeah so basically psychiatrists at this time are saying no this is behavioral once again we're getting to that odd this is behavioral every time i hear that i want to cringe i'm like what do you think drives the behavior right so this other thing that I've been thinking about is also like, where is he spending time reading or researching? Like to reference an obscure god like Apophis um, mm-hmm. makes me think that he is also learned in some way. That's not well, like rem- someone that you yeah. just know, you know? Well, remember, so he, he, in terms of him being learned, he has in an, a fifth grade education. Mm-hmm. But he does have access to a prison library. Right. And what is he doing in fucking solitary all day? Yeah. 
reading. Oftentimes, and again, we'll, we'll have this conversation of are his delusions real or not, they can be fed by something that you maybe heard once, something that was really fleeting to you. You saw a TV show or a commercial or about that got stuck in your head. I will say more often they're very cultural. They're much more culturally driven, but I have seen instances where it's like, like it's possible just, that during his like Egyptian mythology unit in fifth grade, it like this particular thing like embedded in his brain. Yes, yes. Okay. So Apophis, I only did like kind of really cursory glance on this because well, so like Apophis it's... is like uh, associated with chaos. And... Yeah, yeah. Okay, go. Um... You, you you do it. You go. For it. <laughs> you go for it, Miss Mysticism. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um... He, he he is associated with chaos, and he's a dark spirit. Yes, yes. Um, and then he's like most known in Egyptian mythology for um, having a major battle with Ra, who was a much more familiar figure. Um, mm-hmm. So Ra being seen as like um, representing the sun, solar. Um, yes. And Apophis or Apep being representative of chaos. So it's like a classic duality story, right? But I think Ra is a much more like, um, I don't know, culturally salient Present? reference. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think most of the time when we do that, like, fifth grade Egyptology unit, we learn about Ra. Yeah, for sure. For sure. If I'm yeah. remembering correctly, Ra was very much about sequence and order because he was the sun and the sun always rose. And mm-hmm. Apophis was the dark chaos. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, in opposite mm-hmm. of light. And that is who Nico Jenkins would say was ordering him to do these things that that was the voice he was hearing and it makes perfect sense that that's whom he would see mm-hmm. himself as right like looking at the entire web of it like that's that's who he mm-hmm. sees himself to be right a bringer of chaos um yes and he, is. And he yes. is right like he's he's chaotic evil i'm so into this right now <laughs> oh, me too me too but remember, the doctors are saying, no, this is just behavioral. He's choosing these behaviors. Mm. Although they agree that he, this was behavioral and he was choosing these behaviors, they re-upped um, his risperidone and his Depakote. Mm. But after three days, suspiciously, the risperidone de- uh, prescription was discontinued. Um, Jenkins, when Jenkins learned of this, you know... I. I imagine it's very much like you kind of go, you get your medications in the prison ward or they send it to you if you're in solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, Jenkins yeah. would send a letter to Dr. Baker, um, the prescribing doctor, asking why this was discontinued, saying that it helped him manage the voice of Apophis and remaining stable in reality. Quote, remaining stable in reality. Mm-hmm. His symptoms would rapidly increase that week. If you're curious... Risperidone has a half-life of anywhere between three and 30 hours and can be out fully out of your system within a week. So did they provide a reason for stopping it? Ah. No. He would never get a response. And a few weeks later, the Depakote was also discontinued. Yes. What? Nebraska. Literally, uh, his shit says... 
stable on medication. <laughs> I and mean, it's, it's, it's in, in the, the documents. In the in 2010, um, after a transfer, he undergoes a, a reevaluation, just a customary evaluation when he's transferred prisons. He tells doctors that his diagnoses are bipolar and schizophrenia. And that he was on risperidone and Depakote. So they took them off of him. But when he goes to his next evaluation, he's like, hey, here's my diagnoses. Here's my medications. I need them. He reports hallucinations and intermittent explosive symptoms, but denies um, homicidal or suicidal ideation. He is referred after that cursory evaluation to a more complete mental health evaluation, where he is evaluated by Dr. Eugene Oliveto. Eugene Oliveto is an interesting guy. Uh, he's interviewed in one of the podcasts I listen to. And while I agree with some of the things he said, dude is wholly unprofessional. Like, really? one of the most unprofessional interviews I have ever heard in my life. Just like a lot of exaggerated speech. Like when you see a doctor, when I see someone like in my profession and he's a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, but even still, when I see somebody within my field testifying and doing interviews, I want to see them present themselves as a professional and he did not. Right. Anyway, that's just a rant. So he completes the evaluation. He puts in his diagnosis a rule out of schizoaffective versus bipolar disorder. Basically what this means is schizoaffective and bipolar disorder are very similar diagnoses that you have severe mood swings and symptoms of psychosis. Now, not everybody with bipolar disorder has psychotic symptoms, but it is possible. The real difference between the two of them is are the psychotic symptoms present only in the presence of a mood episode, which would be bipolar disorder, or are they chronically present? And that would be schizoaffective disorder. It is a very, very difficult rule out with not a lot of inter reliability. So just put that out there. Got it. And he puts down an access to diagnosis of antisocial impulsiveness, obsessiveness, blah, blah, blah. Access to We'll kind of talk about this because it does go into how he gets treated um, and what some of the other psychiatrists say. So we used to have this kind of code that we used of five axes. So the first axis would be your primary mental health diagnosis. So that would be your schizoaffective, your bipolar disorder. Axis two was considered in the past to be things that cannot be changed. And that was specifically an intellectual disability or a personality disorder. So... If you had a personality disorder as your primary diagnosis, it would be you would be called Axis 2, and you are not granted the same mental health treatment as somebody without that. Anyway, yeah. so Dr. Oliveto re-ups prescriptions for Depakote and Risperidone, uh, recommends a more thorough forensic evaluation before, hearing, before his hearing on the assault uh, at the funeral goes forward. In July 2010, he's seen by Dr. Moore, who says, quote, I think that the possibility of a psychotic illness is present, but I do not think that it is a very good possibility. The descriptions that Mr. Jenkins gives me of his psychotic symptoms appear to me to be thought out and probably acquired from someone else. They don't really follow the usual path of auditory hallucinations. It also appears to me 
that when I did not instantly accept his descriptions of the symptoms, he began to add to them and sort of play it by ear, adding more and more symptoms to the mix that he had. I believe his major diagnosis is antisocial personality disorder, and I doubt the presence of psychosis. Um, I know we don't like it for some reasons, but do we have an IQ? Later uh, assessments, like uh, after his spree, his IQ score at assessment would be 68, which is utter bullshit and not right. That's not a valid. Yeah, that makes no sense. Basically, what she's saying is, I don't believe him. It's bullshit. Mm -hmm. He researched this. He's operating. operating. Mm -hmm. So again, between Dr. Oliveto and Dr. Moore, we are getting to that description of, is he psychotic? Does he have a psychotic disorder? Or is he faking it? And I want to caveat and kind of go back. Uh, I feel like we use the word psychotic really, like, out of line in most context but i'm trying to use it in the clinical sense that he has a psychotic disorder or does he have a psychotic disorder um right just needed to say that (laughs) so this starts essentially a back and forth that is going to go on for years one psychiatrist or psychologist stating that Nico suffers from psychosis, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, or bipolar. Another psychologist or psychiatrist stating that he's manipulating, he's fully cognizant, he's intentional in his actions and words. Their argument basically against him having psychosis basically comes down to that his symptoms did not progress or seem to follow the typical path of development of these mental health conditions that are known or how hallucinations emerge and develop. It felt that he was kind of upping the ante to get a reaction and to get better treatment conditions, that he was adding more symptoms to the mix anytime somebody didn't believe him, and thus they stated that he only suffered from a personality disorder, which, like I mentioned, means that he does not qualify for treatment at a mental health unit. I feel like you have a thought you're trying to put together. I do. I just feel like... um... That is so far to me, like a reasonable conclusion to draw looking at only him in the context of like this time in his late teens, early twenties, but he reported his first hallucinations Mm -hmm. at age eight. So that's a, that's a long con, right? Like if, if it's a con, that's a, that's a long ass con starting from an eight year old. Right. Yeah. And we'll get into this a bit more, but what do we know about solitary confinement and your mental health? Yeah. Makes everything worse. Any underlying, any predisposition is, <laughs> it's going to get activated. Yeah. The only thing that it helps is your face tattooing skills. <laughs> Apparently. And they actually look pretty good for face tattoos. They're, they're not bad. You know, he tried at one point to uh, tattoo 666 into his forehead, but he did it backwards because he was doing it in a mirror. And sounds like something I would do, but <laughs> I, I, I also wouldn't tattoo my face. No, that's true. I, I thought about getting the, um, have you seen these like rainbow freckle tattoos oh that people are God. doing? They're so cute. They're cute, but is it long-term cute or is it short-term cute? Right. Well, they fade, though. It's one of those things, like, yeah. you're putting it on such delicate skin, it's going to fade. My yeah. skin is so pale, it's it's in there forever. Yeah, not me. Anyway. 
So essentially, again, we're we're talking about his competence, right? And well, we're talking about his competence, and we're also talking about his qualification for fucking fair treatment. Yes, right, like yes. that. I guess, like to me, the my my other big question mark is like. What's fair treatment? Does it really matter which axis he's on if treatment works? Like, who gives a shit? Well, if treatment works, who cares? And this is the argument that would be made, is that there is no approved treatment for personality disorders, especially for antisocial personality disorder, that there is no medication and no therapeutic treatment approved by the FDA to treat antisocial personality disorder. Well, fuck the FDA. This makes no sense to me right now. I I, I think for me, it's like, okay, everybody agrees that he has PTSD. That is one thing that everybody agrees on. Why does that not qualify him to get treatment? Because any practicing psychologist or psychiatrist is going to tell you that PTSD, and we have known this since we called it shell shock, can contribute to outbursts of aggression, can contribute to impulsive violence. So, again, I I want to make this very, very clear because we're going to talk about horrific crimes that he commits. He is not not responsible, but could this have been stopped? Right. Did the state have a duty to do something, or is there blood on the hands of Nebraska State Penitentiary? Yeah, I have a feeling I have a lot of feelings about that question next week. <laughs> so um, the Ombudsman's report concludes that a lot of this disagreement, so essentially a lot of those evaluations were related to him being competent to stand trial for the uh, assault on the prison guard at his release, as well as his opportunity to get mental health treatment at an inpatient criminal facility. It was deemed that he was competent to stand trial and that he did not qualify for treatment at the mental or for transfer to the mental health unit the ombudsman report kind of talks about this and goes in this into some length saying that basically this was in large part due to infighting in the prison over different levels of staff so for example dr olivetto was an outside consultant basically somebody that the prison pays to hey come in do this evaluation blah 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 Dr. Baker was an employee of the prison, so she was kind of more tied to their requirements and what they need. And she's the one that said, no, be fine. It's behavioral. Again, my most fucking hated phrase in all of the world. Every time I see somebody say, like, oh, it's behavioral, I'm like, I'm going to hit you. Is that behavioral? Clearly. Clearly an issue. Like, this, it means essentially... This is a behavior. It's not a symptom. It's for secondary gain. They just need to try harder. And even if you're saying he needs to try harder, he needs to get his shit together and stop faking it, give him the tools to do that. Yeah, yeah. This infighting would go on for years, like I said. Um, During this time, he only spent more time in solitary confinement. But the staff in large were the ones that considered transfer to a mental health unit was secondary gain and i think that this is a good place to stop and talk about okay we're on page 11 of 13 of my notes um this is a good place to stop and talk about the impact of solitary confinement right solitary confinement has been considered to be dangerous and a helpful practice for decades if not centuries the fact that the u.s still does it and still does it so like willy-nilly and 
fucking two years at a time? Are you insane? The APA, the American Psychological Association, cites solitary confinement as associated with increased risk of self-harm, anxiety, depression, aggression, paranoia, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempt, and completion. In fact, one study found that approximately 50% of suicides occur in solitary confinement. 50% of suicides that happen in prison happen in solitary confinement. Solitary can both create mental health symptoms and exacerbate any existing ones. Bizarre behaviors that have been cited by prisoners in solitary confinement include sewing one's mouth shut, fecal smearing, self-branding, mutilation of all types, extreme pica. Pica behaviors of eating like literally anything that is in the prison cell, including bodily fluids and concrete. I'm just going to quote here from Professor Greg Haney, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, his testimony to Congress regarding the use of solitary confinement in U.S. prisons. He says, quote, Thus we know that prisoners in solitary confinement suffer from a number of psychological and psychiatric maladies, including significantly increased negative attitudes and affect, irritability, anger, aggression, and even rage, may experience chronic insomnia, free-floating anxiety, fear of impending emotional breakdowns, a loss of control and panic attacks. Many report experiencing severe and even paralyzing discomfort around other people, engage in self-imposed forms of social withdrawal, and suffer from extreme paranoia. Many report hypersensitivity to external stimuli, such as noise, light, sound, and smell, as well as various kinds of cognitive dysfunctions. Blah, blah, blah. Ruminations in which they fixate on trivial things intensely and over long periods of time, a sense of hopelessness, depression, or widespread. Many prisoners report signs and symptoms of psychosis, including auditory and visual hallucinations. Any of that sound like Nico Jenkins? <laughs> Literally all of that. Literally all of that. Now, eventually, after all of this infighting between staff, there would be some meeting in the middle. Staff consulted and agreed that upon prison release, mental health symptoms would be a condition of his parole. Okay, that's something that's still not appropriate in my mind. Yeah, but it's something. Now, we are at 2011 at this point. Jenkins is approaching his release. He's about two years from release. He is constantly requesting mental health treatment and transfer to a mental health unit. He wrote multiple letters, initially requesting treatment, eventually begging not to be released from prison. These letters were described as erratic. I would describe them as hypergraphic. Um, so covered in small details, blah, blah, blah. Some people would say that they were covered and hypergraphic on the outside and then coherent, well-worded on the inside. Interesting. And again, other people would say, okay, that's evidence he was faking. He ripped out a definition of schizophrenia from a book and said his father and grandfather both suffered from this. He included in his letters the comment, quote, Why would an inmate so close to his freedom say, Hey, throw me in the nut house. I am fully acknowledging my mental illness and I am seeking help at all costs. Thank you. What he is requesting at this point, as he is getting closer and closer to release from prison, is he is seeking a civil commitment to a mental health facility. 
Now, under state law, authorities can commit people to mental health institutions, such as like uh, the one he was seeking was the Lincoln Regional Center. Mm -hmm. If they meet, we've talked about this two-pronged test in the Hangley episode. They suffer from a mental illness and they are dangerous to themselves or others. This is most exclusively used on sex offenders. Other violent offenders, this is extremely rare that it's used on. But Jenkins is specifically requesting civilly commit me. I'm not safe. Yeah. Uh, In his 2011 hearing regarding the officer assault, he asked to be transferred to the Lincoln Regional Center so he could get psychiatric treatment before reintegrating to society. This request was denied. His request followed as, quote, The only thing I want to ask of the court is to somehow court order me to get some form of mental health treatment before I'm released. I'm only 24 years old, and yet I've been incarcerated since I was 16. I've never had no parole. I've never had work release. You know I'm just trying to be thrown out into... You know I'm not just trying to be thrown out into society. You know without any kind of... You know what I mean, reintegrating into society. And I know that you have the jurisdiction to court order me to mental health. But the judge actually says, I don't, actually. I can't court order you to mental health. Your placement in prison is up to the prison. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. So what the judge said was, the court has received evidence that the defendant has suffered from mental disorders for a long period of time and that the court believes that such treatment would be of benefit to the defendant. That doesn't mean they have to do it. It means I'm putting it on paper so that maybe they'll consider it. Oh, that's so messed up. Once again, Jenkins would never be transferred. He would continue to be placed in solitary confinement and denied mental health treatment. In 2012, Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers stepped in after Jenkins sent him an erratic letter full of indiscernible ramblings, discussions of being controlled by a deity, and self-mutilations. He would also send razor blades to Senator Chambers. Oh. Well, that's a gift. Yeah. it Very erratic. Like, again, like, some of this stuff was really erratic. It would be... Chambers was trying to get him into treatment um, yeah. and Jenkins would write him letters and then send him threatening things and yeah. Nico's family said that Jen- that his mental state was deteriorating. Senator Chambers said that he should be getting mental health treatment in prison. So basically what happened was Jenkins' family started talking to Senator Chambers and he told the family Jenkins should be getting mental health treatment in prison as long as possible and said, quote, if the whole job can't be done, seek civil commitment. Interesting. Okay. Like, it's everybody sees that this man should not be on the streets. Yeah, totally. Except for the prison. So in May 2013, where four, three, four months shy of his release, His family sends a letter to the Tecumseh State Prison requesting Jenkins be civilly committed, saying that they cannot take him home. But by this time, and nobody told the family, by this time he had already been transferred to the local Douglas County Prison. Yeah, because doesn't he get released on, like, the late July? July 30th. Okay, so we're talking, like, two months. Yeah, two months. Wow. 
sorry, two months, not three months. No, it's all good. There's just nothing that they can do at that point. Like, yeah, nothing, nothing. Jenkins um, himself begins to write letters to prison officials with descriptions of schizophrenia, scribbles and sketches of Apophis, the serpent god that we talked about. Um, they were scanned. They were sent to people. They were emailed around. His last letter was sent two weeks before his release and included more discussion of Apophis, pictures of his girlfriend's tattoos, because he managed to have girlfriends in prison. I don't... Yeah, whatever. Um, comments that he will, quote, protect the kingdom with animalistic savage brutality if released. And... Uh... Once again, corrections officer has stated, uh, this is behavioral, not psychotic. Uh, At this point, I don't fucking care. Yeah. No, I, I don't either. It's, I don't care what your theory-driven bullshit it's is. It's just semantics at that point. Really, the, the problem is, like, when you get down to brass tacks about it, is, like, this man has these issues. We know what helps to stabilize this man. He's begging to be stabilized. He's begging to not re-enter society. But the prison is saying those medications do not treat antisocial personality disorder, which is all he has. Maybe this is a reductive question, then. Then why do they work? They would argue they didn't work. He just said they did. Once again, acting psychiatrists say he is not mentally ill and he is fit for full release into the community. And on July 30th, 2013, Jenkins is released from prison and he steps back into his family home with the Jenkins and Leverings family gang. And that is where we're going to leave off for today. Wow. Okay. So I'm not sleeping tonight. Thanks. <laughs> burbling with rage now okay so then uh next week we come back to talk about the what comes next the four murders that will occur between july 30th and august 30th wow okay so this has been a romp thank you friends do please come back for part two of this madness Part two, we will talk about the murders that he and his family commit together. Because this is a family affair. Okay. And we will talk about where this goes from here. I will tell you spoilers. This is still a case where Nico Jenkins is arguing. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about courtroom antics, some hijinks. And we'll kind of come back to this, like, what does competency mean? Yes, our essential questions. Yes, our essential questions. And what uh, what responsibility does the state of Nebraska have? Because I'm going to argue a whole fucking lot. Yeah, same, same. I don't know the rest of the story, but um, <laughs> so far I'm thinking, wow, okay. Bad things happened, and they were predictable-ish. Let's find out next week. Come back, friends. Yeah, in the meantime, hang out with us on the socials. We like it. We're going to come back. <laughs> <laughs>
so we should say goodnight here. Look, friends. Um, take some deep breaths. I'm going to need to do some Shavasana before I uh, go to bed tonight, I think. Because <laughs> I am pretty upset now. Okay. So thank you. As for, you should uh, be. As you should be. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening and raging with us. So, so, so great. Because um, if you heard that and didn't rage with me, then, like, I don't fucking know Yeah, what like are. what? Yeah. Yeah. If you're not raging at this point, like, man, are you mellow? What what riles you up? If you're not enraged right now, like, take a second to contemplate what actually does rile you up if this isn't it. <laughs> okay, like, and let us know what riles you up if this doesn't do it. Because, geez, <laughs> I want to understand you. I want to understand you. Uh, all right, friends. So uh, please send good vibes for Murder Beagle. And please come back next week. I don't know how I feel about the Nebraska prison system. I don't think I love them. Bye. You shouldn't. year because we have too much going on and no totally understandable hobbies but um yeah i went back there today to get something out of the garage and realized that a bunch of my stuff from last year has gone rogue and is just like growing all over the yard so i have like <laughs> all these like rogue zucchinis going everywhere I a couple of rogue tomatoes it. yeah so i'm like this is this is a vibe. Kind of fun yeah that's fun though just kind of see what it does my kale is like six feet tall i'm like okay <laughs> whatever it speaks to the chaos in your life right it now. It really does. Like... Yeah, that's why I thought like this fits. This totally fits. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>